Hello, you're listening to Undisciplined Podcast. Today we're talking to Professor Jun Otsuka from Kyoto University. Soon he has a book out, The Role of Mathematics in Evolutionary Theory, coming out with Cambridge University Press. We cover a lot of topics. I'm sure you will enjoy. Professor Jun Otsuka from Kyoto University. Can you tell me about your position here? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm an associate professor in the philosophy department of Kyoto University. So I've been here for two years. This is my third year. And before that, I worked in Kobe University, uh, also as an associate professor for two years. If you don't mind, can you tell me a bit about your educational background, undergraduate, postgraduate? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I was born in Tokyo. So, uh, and uh, I, uh, I came to Kyoto when uh, so I was 19 years old. So I uh, entered Kyoto University as a uh, undergrad student, and the uh, so I uh, major in uh, philosophy and then uh, graduate f- uh, philosophy department here and uh, then entered as a master student uh, in, in Kyoto as well and did masters and first uh, three years of PhD work here and so that is uh, coursework in Kyoto uh, I decided to study abroad uh, and I went to Indiana University to do a PhD in history and philosophy of science because I was I was doing philosophy in Kyoto, so especially I worked in Spinoza, nineteenth uh, century, seventeenth uh, century philosophy philosopher. So, uh, and at that time, I uh, changed a little bit of my mind, and so maybe uh, I, I wanted to do more like more kind of scientific stuff or contemporary stuff. So I changed my field and I uh, changed my major to philosophy of biology and to study the philosophy of biology I went to in, in Indiana University and that was I guess 2008 and uh, there I uh, did my PhD in the history of philosophy of science and also I did my master's in statistics and yeah, and it I think it took like five years, and then did some uh, postdoc at UC Davis for two years, and then came to came back to Japan in Kobe. Thank you. So I'm curious why you said before you were studying Spinoza, which is a kind of very classical philosopher, traditional philosopher. So you changed your mind. You wanted to do something more contemporary. Why? I can see with Spinoza the link to philosophy of science, but what was it that made you change your mind? Yeah, so it's a long story, but <laughs> to make it short, so I, uh, so I, in my thesis, like like BA thesis, I worked in, uh, I, I worked in the, t- the the problem with teleology in Spinoza, the teleological explanation that is. Uh, uh, explanation that result to a goal or end of behavior to explain the behavior itself. And there was a debate in the Spinoza literature at that time whether Spinoza uh, 
Well, Spinoza uh, is famous. Uh, Spinoza is known for kind of criticizing teleological explanation. So the kind of the official, uh, the, 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 the traditional interpretation of Spinoza is that Spinoza does not deal with uh, theological explanation at all. But some, uh, some philosophers like Jonathan Bennett uh, started claiming that, well, Spinoza implicitly uses theological explanation. And so there's a problem at that time with Spinoza Arrow's uh, theological explanation in his, his work. So I was interested in that uh, that debate, and so I worked in theological explanation, and that of course uh, led me to uh, work on what what are theological explanation, what is what is it at all, and then I found that uh, the uh, the theological explanation is actually used in contemporary science, that is uh, evolutionary biology. So at that time, the philosopher of biology discussed that actually the functional explanation, that is the explanation of biological traits like heart in terms of its function, uh, that is, for example, if the function of heart is to pump, pump blood, uh, this is an, a theoretical explanation, they said. So I found that, well, actually theoretical explanations are used in science and evolutionary theory. So then I have to study this explanation first to understand what uh, is theoretical explanation. And that brought me to the general field of philosophy of biology. So I was interested in theoretical functional explanation in biology first, and then evolutionary theory in general. This is interesting for me because this is, for me, giving a functional explanation is almost a kind of opposite to a teleological explanation of something. So if you say that even a biological function like a heartbeat has a tele- teleological end, uh, can you explain that to me? How, how does the functionalism go over to your teleology? Yeah, sure. So the first thing to note is that function is not just what a thing does. For example, heart does many things. Of course, it uh, it pumps blood, but it does many other things as well. For example, it increases our weight, for example, to some extent. Of course, this is kind of uh, very uh, not interesting things that does, but at least it does something. And it, for example, uh, makes noise, heartbeat, and so on. But it's not a function, right? Uh, nobody says that function of heart is to, uh, to make noise or to make heartbeat or anything like that. So uh, there is a distinction between what it does and its function. And then the question is, what makes some behavior function of that thing? And uh, then f- the function is something that explains the origin of that thing itself. So when we say uh, the function of heart is to pump broad, we say that because it pump, it pump rod, uh, there is heart. Well, heart is there in, in our body, right? So uh, function somehow is a behavior that explains the origin or maybe maintenance of that trait in our body or in, in some, something. So 
Yeah, that that's that's how uh, philosophers of biology define function. At least it, this is the one way to define function. There are uh, various other interpretation of function, but this is the one way teleological uh, interpretation of function. And why it's is it teleological? Because what is teleology? Teleology is an explanation of something that resulted to the behavior done by that something itself. So, for example, we say that what is a heart for? Like, what is a heart for? Well, it is for pumping blood. So this is, we cite its goal or kind of aim to explain the heart. So in a sense, a functional explanation in this interpretation is teleological. But teleology, but uh, the important things to note here is that teleology does not uh, assume some kind of spooky mechanism. It doesn't assume that the future causally influences the past or something like that. So it, it's just a way of explanation. So it's a, it's a way of explaining things by resort to its outcome or its consequence and so on. So that's that's the reason that uh, philosophers of biology at that time think that functional explanation is a teleological explanation. So that also makes me wonder if we speak about the function of something, I think perhaps in the case of a heart, that wouldn't be the function is not so controversial, but perhaps in more complex situations is the function of something is that function intrinsic to the thing itself or is that function projected or received by by an external observer well, that's a very interesting question actually so yeah we assume uh, we usually think that function is intrinsic to an object uh, at least aristotle uh, so that way so according to the Aristotle's doctrine of four causes that everything, well, there, there are two, four types of causes, and one is theological cause and theological explanation. And that explanation is based on the nature of a thing. So it is the nature of me uh, of doing something, it's the nature of a rock of falling down, something like that. So uh, in that interpretation, the goal or function of a thing is internal to the object itself, it's in its essence. But uh, the modern thinker, like modern philosophers of biology, uh, do not think in that way. So they do not think that function is an interesting feature of an organism or even a species, because it's completely determined by environmental pressure, the, uh, the environment. Like the, uh, if something has certain function, that is just in response to surrounding environment. And uh, even if one has a function, that function does not necessarily contribute to, uh, contribute to that organism or that species in the current environment anymore. For example, uh, something is some trait might be adaptation to an earlier period, but uh, that environment itself is not anymore, maybe. So for example, in, in human, this is actually the case because our environment has changed so much. A trait is function for something does not mean that it is still advantageous to, that, to do that thing. This is, I think, important because that function has some kind of normative 
normative implication. Mm. So if some trait, well, a function of some trait is to do something, say x, then people easily lead off the implication that it is natural for that thing to do x. And if it cannot do x, this is a somehow imperfect or deficit or something. But this kind of normative claim is completely outside of the functional claim itself because function is just a statement about history and it doesn't say anything like it has to continue to do so. So just because that, that function as such like x does not mean that it still has to do this. Right? So yeah, this is very important, especially in today's uh, like in sociological in, in our social life. For example, uh, I have I may have uh, so for example uh, eyes. Uh, well, of course that are a function of eyes are to receive uh, the optical information, but some eyes do not do that. But uh, that's just a factual claim, and it does not uh, it does not entail that uh, there must be a kind of whatever it's, uh, that means that there's a normative uh, component. Uh, it, well, it is not legitimate to read off a normative claim that eyes must uh, receive optical information or anything like that. This leads me to thinking, so speaking of evolution more generally, uh, so I think especially when we have uh, conversations with friends in a bar or something or on in the media, the word evolution is used quite often and I think it's definitely become a way for lay people to think about the world or their lives. But I think, I feel like a lot of times people people are not read in evolution, certainly not up to date. Maybe they, uh, they just have some vague idea of what evolution is about, Darwinian evolution. So what are, in general conversation or in the popular media, what, are there any really popular misconceptions about evolution that are either outdated or were never true in the first place? One, one that I can think of is related to what you're speaking about, the normative aspect of functions is I think in the popular imagination, definitely evolution seems to be connected with the idea of progress. Uh, that's probably, at least from what I can see, one of the main misconceptions that people carry about right. evolution. Are there any others? Yeah, you, you are absolutely right that the, the concept of progress uh, is often tied to the concept of evolution, but uh, they are completely two different things. So progress has a certain kind of goal-directed process uh, that has a specific goal, but evolution does not have any specific goal. It is not directed to anything. So yeah, that is one thing. But the other thing, well, there are many things that I think that many misconceptions or kind of the difference in the terminology and so on, but, and also, uh, especially in the States, the, the very notion of evolution is in doubt because of the, uh, because of creationism. Uh, so there are a lot of, uh, debate going on in the States. In Japan, the situation is, I think, not uh, like the US. I think many people believe in evolution. To, to some extent, 
think. But uh, I think that there are many misconceptions, I guess. And uh, the difficult thing is that any misconception has some grain of truth. So it is not totally wrong. In many cases, they are two, uh, kind of oversimplifications. And this uh, such oversimplification is not harmless. So that's the problem, I guess. So a uh, specific example, well, I think uh, many, well, there are many examples, for example, like concept of race. Uh, so that is that uh, humans are distinguished into or classified into distinct uh, race. Uh, and races are different, different uh, people belong to different races, have different dispositions and different uh, maybe physical or mental properties and so on. So this concept of race has been criticized for many years in the biological community and most notably by the uh, evolutionary biologist Richard Grinton. Uh, but it's it's die hard. I mean that uh, it's still there. And uh, so to define the concept of race uh, biologically is not a simple thing at all. I do not say that it's impossible or it's illogical or anything like that. Well, it 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 might be uh, possible, but uh, in many cases, it's totally. It would be in whatever it would be. It would be totally different from a common understanding of race and so on. So, I think this uh, notion of race is one example. And the other is concept of gene, which is, of course, very central to today's biology. But uh, it is very hard to understand what is genes. And the philosophers of biology uh, have discussed long, for a long time what are they, what can they be, and so on. And also, uh, their ontological status, what they are, is different. And also, uh, what they do is also different. So. Uh, People often think that uh, that some of our properties are determined biologically, uh, that is, they are described by our genes or DNA and so on genome. Uh, but this conception, this distinction between nature and nurture, is not so firm. So it, you cannot just say that this trait, for example, that I being my uh, my being. Uh, for example, a particular uh, height is biologically determined, whereas I like particular food, it is not biologically determined or something like that. So, but this is not so that simple at all. For example, and, and also uh, people say that there's a gene for cancer, gene for IQ, and gene for music talent and so on. But the story is not that simple at all because that these abilities are determined at least not just uh, by single gene or not even combinations of genes, but combination of uh, genetic factors and environmental factors as well. And they act they act non-additively. That is, uh, they they are strong interaction there. So it is it's not that simple to say that some 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 ability some of our abilities determined by nature and nurture and so on. Okay. okay. Thank you. So speaking of genes, I think and um, popular understandings of evolution 
brings me to the point of the name of Darwin is, of course, very famous. But if we speak about gene, that comes from Mendel, right? So from your work, I understand that there are three broad schools of thinking within evolutionary theory. One of them does stem from the tradition of Darwin and Mendel. Do you mind saying what, what the three branches are or what, what their differences are very briefly? Yeah, so philosophers of biology are, are interested in what our evolutionary theory is. And every scientific theory assumes certain, well, what do we say, ontology or kind of building block of the world. For example, Newtonian physics assumes that uh, the world is consist from a Newtonian particle uh, that has a certain mass and uh, certain, uh, certain uh, it is located in Euclidean space and has certain moments and so on. So this is a kind of basic building block of Newtonian physics. And of course other physics, uh, quantum mechanics, assume that different things populate the world, so they have different ontology. And the social science, of course, has a different ontology. Economics assume that, uh, for example, uh, the game theory uh, assume that, that there are uh, agents uh, that uh, had a specific goal function and so on. So uh, every scientific theory has a certain ontology. And so I'm interested in what kind of ontology is assumed in evolutionary theory. And actually, this is more or less uh, uh, studied by many philosophers of biology. And I think there are two. Uh, what, there are three ways of thinking about that biology, uh, that, that ontology of evolutionary biology. The one is the so-called population thinking, uh, which was proposed by the famous evolutionist uh, Ernst Meyer, and the idea is that the basic entity of evolutionary theory is kind of a notion of population. So the population, so we have to think of population as a base of evolution, that population evolves. The implication of that is that there is no fixed type or something. So human or homo sapiens is a kind of population. And it's a pop population is just a collection of different uh, individuals. Uh, and they do not necessarily share the essence, the common essence. It is very much difficult to extract all the, 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 the essence of human beings. So Aristotle, so, so that there is an essence for human beings, that is a rational animal and so on. But uh, the, uh, Maya denied uh, such essence to exist uh, in biology because that evolution is always changing population so that uh, they are always the exception that the, vari the, the variation is ubiquitous and only with variation uh, evolution by natural selection happens. So variation is fundamental. The essence is just an artifact. And uh, that uh, put Meyer to put uh, uh, population as a basic entity of uh, evolutionary biology. So that's one thing. The other, uh, the another way of thinking uh, about evolutionary biology is, uh, as you uh, indicated, uh, the uh, the notion of Mendel. So Mendel introduced genes, and that concept of gene was discovered uh, in the beginning of in the beginning twentieth century. Yeah, the end of nineteenth century, beginning of twentieth century, and that concept 
is that there is a fixed discrete entity called, not fixed, a discrete entity called gene. And evolution is a change of that uh, discrete, uh, frequency of that discrete entity. So I and you may have the same gene, actually. So for example, uh, in, in, a, in a very basic population genetics, you assume that, for example, two types of genes, uh, large A and small A, and you track the free, uh, change in frequency of uh, large A and small A, so two different types. So in this concept, so we still have a variation. Not all individuals are same, but still individuals are kind of classified into dis distinct combinations of genes. For example, you might have large A, large A. I might have small A, small A. And some might, uh, my friend might have large A, small A, but uh, our friend maybe ha may have large A, large A. Then in that respect, you and uh, our friend are the same. Uh, they have the same genotype type. So in this concept, uh, population is kind of consisted of many types, many genotypes. So populations are kind of discrete. Uh, so we have discrete entity code type, and the uh, evolution is changed in that type. So this is not essence because that, uh, it does not assume that uh, uh, everybody in the population has the same gene. But even still, uh, it, it has a discrete entities that can be uh, shared by different uh, individuals. So this is another way of thinking about evolution. And I think this is the standard way of thinking about evolution. And that is the, one of the basic tenets of the so-called modern synthesis, which is the standard paradigm of the modern uh, of modern evolutionary biology. So yeah, these are two main ways of thinking about evolution. Uh, this, yet the third way is to think a little bit beyond genes. So uh, modern evolutionary biology think that genes are fundamental entities. Uh, but maybe we can, uh, there may be other kind of uh, entities uh, playing around. So, for example, uh, the that's still uh, well. So some some recent people discussed that, uh, for example, epigenetics, uh, the epigenome is also important. So gene get modified uh, by uh, phenotype and other activities. So and these modified patterns, pattern for modification, is also important. And also uh, organisms or individual organisms create a environment in such a way that, for example, uh, it is called niche construction. So they create niche, for example, beaver construct a dam. And that dam is also inherited. Well, for example, earthworms, uh, they, uh, they, uh, they change the soil. And uh, so then that environment is also created, so that niche is also created and uh, inherited to the next generation and so on. So there may be things other than genes that are inherited and that kind of you know, make an evolving system uh, beside genes. So that is somehow uh, rich. Uh, it, these 
this view assume a somehow richer ontology that is that uh, their their ontology contain not just genes but maybe also uh, epigenetic factor and uh, niche and so on or maybe developmental pathways and so on so uh, there is a debate between the the classical traditional evolutionary biology uh, the so-called modern synthesis and also there are some people uh, who argue against that traditional view and argue that uh, you, we need a somehow extended evolutionary synthesis that they we need more we need different framework and so on. I am a philosopher, so I'm not here to judge which is correct or not. So I, but uh, I think this is a scientific and empirical model. But I'm interested in the debate. And so what, because this debate is all, can also get, uh, can, can often get intense and often they talk past each other. So there is a misunderstanding between these two camps. So I'm, I'm interested in argumentative structure and their assumptions and so on. So I'm, I, uh, in, some of, uh, in some of my paper, I try to clarify uh, the debate and their misunderstanding in terms of different ontologies. So they assume different things uh, as basic entities. And that because uh, some of uh, their uh, debate are so hard to understood by the other camp and so on. So this is, I think, what uh, Kuhn has called uh, the incommensurability between different paradigms. So I do not claim that they form two different paradigms because uh, I think our paradigms are more radical different and make a more radical difference. But there are somehow uh, difference in conceptual framework. And that kind of difference sometimes makes scientific communication difficult. And as a philosopher of biology, I think one of my our job is to organize or kind of to clarify the, this, uh, the, the debate and uh, point out uh, what are the difference and what are the conceptual difference that makes the communication so hard. So that's what I'm trying to do. Mm. Oh, thank you. That's very interesting. I want to go back to what you said about the niche construction. So it, it sounds to me, please help me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me that one of the differences there is that with niche construction, you're talking about evolution not just happening within in the terminology. I'm used to it, so not just within the system itself, but that uh, a feedback between the system and environment and that if the system reproduces that it inherits certain structures or functions from within the system but that it also inherits its environment that's very interesting to me yeah so the the question of unity is always interesting so for example we are a kind of system right we are we are a collection of bunch of different cells and so uh we are kind of correction already. We, uh, we think that we are individual by themselves, but actually these individuals are just a collection or group. And uh, they, that, group, that group is so well coordinated, so we don't have to treat each cell as single individuals. But sometimes uh, it, 
we have to treat this as an individual. For example, in the case of cancer, cancer is a case where the individual uh, starting start to evolve by by itself. So it's each cell uh, increases uh, uh, incessantly, and that uh, makes a lot of problem for the group itself. So w we are a group actually, and also. Uh, it is almost impossible for us to live alone. So we depend on social infrastructure. And so we create niche in that sense. Well, we create niche and our niche is inherited from, uh, from ancestors. So this is, in some sense, this is a whole system, whole, uh, whole social system that is kind of a unit, that makes a unit. Of course, that in human case, it is a little bit kind of controversial because that, well, in some way, well, we can leave our society and the society is still different. But in the case of B uh, and so on, so the, the colony is much more integrated. So in some way of looking at it, maybe a beehive it's, can be its own entity. The idea is that individual is not just consist from uh, biological entities, but it may also include some kind of environmental components that is uh, that is obvious in beehive and so on our, our, our social infrastructure. So we may say that the individual, uh, it, not just group, but the, the, that group uh, was evolving system may contain some kind of what we call environmental factor as well. So where, if human beings and certain animals, or perhaps everything, is a collection of, of systems or different parts, where does the unity come from? Will we be going back to Aristotle to say that there's some kind of essence that makes it a unity? Or is, like, my one of my first questions, is the unity projected from outside onto the collection yeah. or is it a purely linguistic construction maybe that's too far but yeah that's a very difficult and very interesting question where the unity come from and that's a huge uh, this this is a huge topic in biology and also uh, evolutionary biology and also philosophy of evolutionary biology we differently do not want to go back to Aristotle and claim that there is an essence for species uh, that is a kind of dangerous mistake uh, that, that the species has its own essence and the species evolve for its own shape and so on. This is, I think, no biologist or philosophy uh, frame that way. No one holds that view. So, but even still, I think there's a kind of individuality here so that uh, we are not just corrections of self, but uh, we are ourselves kind of individuals. And the individuals mean that there is a, some kind of unity. So where this unity comes from is a very difficult question. And that is a problem of what uh, we call the problem of measure transition. So at some point in the history, individual cells, individual, uh, yeah, or maybe bacteria uh, living together, started to form a certain individual when and how, uh, this is unsolved problem. And it is still happening, uh, like, uh, or maybe happening, for example, uh, some group uh, like beehive might be individual, then it might have some kind of unity, but what kind of unity is that? 
this is a difficult question. And what is a, a necessary and sufficient condition for some group to become an individual or uni unified individual? This is an ongoing research problem, both empirically and also conceptually. And it would perhaps like I said in the beginning about function, saying that function is something that's projected by the observer. I suppose if we speak about unity like this, that answer wouldn't be enough. The The unity is in the eye of the observer mm -hmm. and not in the thing itself. Yeah, that's I think is a very difficult. So I think we can think that problem in different layers. For example, with in the deepest layer is how or whether our knowledge uh, captures the world. So we think that there are, for example, fundamental particles and uh, fields and so on. Are they real thing in the nature? Or we, act, we adopt this terminology just to describe the nature? So, because, uh, so why we think that, uh, why physics uh, physicists talk about, for example, electron and other uh, particles like uh, charm and quarks and so on. So are they there or they are a useful way of describing and explaining physical phenomena? The philosophers disagree about this uh, between these two stances. One, uh, the, the, the formal way of thinking that is that uh, quarks and electron uh, actually exist in the world is called realist. And it's those who think that they are just uh, kind of fast on the pathway. So they are just a way of describing the world, more anti-realist way of looking at uh, science. So this is the deepest uh, layer. So, in, uh, so we use, for example, the concepts like individuals, genes, and so on functions to describe and ex explain evolution. But do they, uh, do they actually correspond to uh, the nature of joint that is a real objective feature? Well, uh, some people might take anti-realist stance to it. But uh, so this is a kind of uh, metaphysical and the fundamental layer. But uh, without going that deep, I think there is still a problem about how uh, our model fit to the world. So this is a, a, a so functions and uh, other concepts like uh, maybe species, individuals, and so on. They are explanatory concept. We use this concept to explain the world. And to what extent they delineate the objective feature of the world? I think this is an interesting question. Well, I, I have to say I myself is kind of agnostic. <laughs> and so, uh, well, maybe I, 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 uh, my, my stance is that they are part of models. So models uh, are always fictions. So when we have, for example, uh, models of any science like physics, or like, you know, the, uh, the planetary model of uh, atoms and so on, this is not a real thing. This is a replica, or this is a kind of very simplified model. So, so we call it model. And any concept in biology appears in a kind of model. And model is not the real biological system itself. 
it is a simplified replica. And some aspect of it is really explanatory. So if model is explanatory, we have reason to create is to think that its its aspects somehow represent the world to some extent face-free. So I think it's good enough. So I'm not sure if this uh, really captures the real thing in the world or not. Uh, maybe it's a façon de parler. But even still, uh, I think that uh, the model captures the world and the models are useful. Then I think this is, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. Of course, there is a philosophical, remaining philosophical problem. But that is, I think, a very uh, kind of harder problem. And we, of course, uh, that's interesting. But uh, we, uh, I think I will think about it later, maybe. <laughs> uh, so w- one of the things I'm wondering is, as I said to you earlier, my own interest is in uh, social systems theory. So it's taking a lot of biological metaphors like autopoiesis and also evolution to describe social systems, to applying it to social communication between human beings. This has also been criticized by many saying that it's misappropriating biological metaphors for non-biological phenomena. In your opinion, do you think it makes sense to speak of evolution in a social sense? I, I know that in the past, and perhaps what you said about racism earlier, it's been it's definitely been abused, uh, kind of social Darwinism thinking. But apart from those very obvious abuses... Do you think there is any use to, to using these kind of biological metaphors such as evolution within a purely human social context? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. So I'm not so familiar with the specific usage of evolutionary terminology in autopoiesis and so on. Well, I'm aware that they are used in, in, in these fields. But uh, so uh, I, I cannot say anything definite about it because I, I have to look at it. And, but uh, I, in general, I'm, I'm kind of permissive about the, the use of transportations, uh, translation or transportation of one terminology or from one context to another context. This is how science, prog- uh, science works. I don't think it's possible to, for, for any scientific field to work without using any metaphors. So evolutionary biology uh, uses a lot of metaphor itself. For example, uh, it uses concept of information uh, on the program. So it, it is said that DNA has, is a program that encodes phenotypic information and so on. These are, of course, borrowed from informatics and computer science and so on. And it is not directly used. I mean, uh, the, the notion of program, of program is not used as a program in uh, computer science, and the information is not a Shannon information at all, and so on. So uh, these are somehow uh, kind of appropriated uh, from different fields. And in, in some cases, they, they create a lot of misunderstanding. But even still, they serve for certain purposes, and they, I think, have some good about it. And also, there's other metaphor like selective force, 
that every uh, select natural selection is a kind of force uh, that moves the population. But again, this force, uh, the concept of force is borrowed from uh, mechanics, for example, Newtonian physics and so on. But of course, that force is not a Newtonian force at all. Yeah, uh, biologists use a lot of metaphors like selfish genes and so on. It is impossible to do science without these metaphors. I, and I don't think there's any reason to, to rule out all these uh, metaphors. Because ne metaphor is a very, uh, a very productive uh, apparatus, uh, and also uh, it makes communication easier. But at the same time, metaphors are dangerous because it creates uh, unnecessary confusions and misunderstandings and so on. So uh, I guess that that applies to uh, whatever scientific field. So in many uh, in social sciences, yeah, uh, they use a concept both from biology and evolutionary biology and maybe physics, uh, informatics, and so on. But the use of metaphor itself is not bad uh, by itself. Uh, but we have to be careful about its use. So, uh, because uh, as I said, the metaphor might create some kind of uh, unnecessary confusion. And so there is no uh, silver bullet to say that, wow, this use of metaphor is good and this is not good. So, but we have, to, we, all, uh, we have to be always careful and we, we have to analyze the specific use of metaphor in each time. And I think this is a, that, that kind of conceptual work is one of the things that the philosophers need to do. To change direction slightly, we spoke about, you said, the two sibling disciplines of philosophy of science and science and technology studies. Can you elaborate to me what are the differences in focus between the two, between the two fields or the two disciplines? And you said you, you work specifically in the philosophy of science, where I'm slightly more familiar with STS. And I'm familiar with some of the writings in SES without having really thought of or read about the agenda or the meaning of the discipline itself, just kind of selected works within it. So could you outline the difference between those two? Yeah, that's a very difficult because that I, 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 at least I'm not the best person to ask that, <laughs> that question. I'm not so familiar with the history of philosophy of science or let alone history of SDS. But my understanding, so this is my understanding, is that philosophers of science, so we are interested in the kind of internal working of science, how science works internally, what is its logical structure, what are its assumptions, uh, I, I mean theoretical assumption and what are its methodology and how this methodology is justified uh, from its uh, theoretical actions and so on. So we, or maybe at least I, am interested in this kind of internal working or logic of scientific practice. Whereas I think STS is more oriented toward an external aspect of science. So how scientific field, for example, is influenced by its uh, social settings and how a particular uh, project is influenced, for example, that it's, uh, the, the policy, contemporary policy and economic economic situation and technology and so on. 
So I think this, so they STS sees science within the context. So, so how science respond uh, to that context. So this kind of external approach, I guess, is in my understanding, is what SDS is trying to rebuild. I guess. Yeah. yeah, because I suppose so. STS has a more of a sociological background or foundation. Right. Well, I may be wrong, but my understanding is that the SDS stems from largely from uh, Thomas Kuhn, and the Th- Thomas Kuhn introduced a historical perspective to the uh, to philosophy of science. A bit large. So uh, before Thomas Kuhn, logical positivist and uh, uh, Karl Popper, and they tried to characterize scientific investigation ahistorically. So science is a pursuit of truth. So when and who carried out that project is irrelevant. Of course, that uh, that might be an interest of a historian, but the history of, uh, history of philosophy is not the philosophy of science. The philosophy of science concerns just like an internal logic uh, of scientific uh, theory. And but then Kuhn came and uh, said that well, understanding of history is important to understand what science is and what how scientific practice uh, how science uh, pr- proceeds. And I think SDS is much influenced by this Popperian, sorry, Kuhnian emphasis on the history. Okay, thank you. I think that makes it very, very clear for me. One thing when I was looking at your work that was surprising to me, I mean, I'm interested in legal theory or legal philosophy, and I thought a philosophy of science, I could make the... I can make a kind of jump in reading your work, but then, as I said to you, very quickly I started running into equation, and I was surprised to read that you say that we can use equations very accurately to predict evolutionary processes. Am I correct? Well, n- n- not really. It is very difficult to predict evolutionary response. So in many cases, we, I, I don't think we have a very precise equations to predict evolutionary dynamics, as, at least in a real population. What, what is the problem of prediction? Is it a problem of complexity? Yes, problem of complexity. So yeah, so in typical evolutionary problems in evolutionary biology, so there are a lot of factors, potential factors that affect evolutionary uh, change. And it is it is impossible to track all these factors, and it is very difficult to control all the all the factors. So it is first of all it is also to, uh, it is it is difficult to determine the relevant factors. And if you even if you have a specific factors, it is difficult to measure them. So there are a lot of errors, known and unknown. And these noises or alerts make precise prediction almost uh, impossible. I see. So, but you have a book coming out from Cambridge yeah. University Press yeah. that will be out this year. Yeah. And the title of the book is The Role of Mathematics in Evolutionary Theory. Do you mind explaining what your book is about and also what is the role of mathematics in evolutionary biology? Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah, so the relationship between mathematics and science is always a wonder to philosophers. So think about Kant. So he wrote the classic book, uh, The Critics of Pure Reason. 
And one of the main goal or main motivation of that book is why and how you can use mathematics to describe the world. And he has in mind uh, the success of Newtonian theory. So Newtonian theory was so successful and it can predict uh, uh, planetary motion so well. But it is written in the language of mathematics. And this is a little bit curious, a little bit strange, because mathematics is something you create by your own head, in, in your head. Mathematics is usually understood as a purely a priori knowledge. So you don't have to check the world to check to see whether one plus one equal two. You can figure out by yourself by, uh, without looking at anything. So this is a little bit this is kind of surprise uh, that uh, you can uh, use mathematics to describe actual course of, uh, actual course of physics, uh, actual course of uh, planet and so on. So that was one motivation he wrote his book and his answer was that uh, the, uh, the Newtonian physics and the scientific knowledge is what he calls uh, synthetic a, a, a priori. But that solution, a Kantian solution, has been challenged, uh, of course, uh, by later philosophers, subsequent philosophers, and so on. So this problem, the role of mathematics in science, is a traditional philosophical topic. Kant was interested in physics, but biology, especially evolutionary biology, is also rife as mathematics. So, for example, uh, it has some evolutionary biology has some very fundamental theorem or fundamental equations that describe evolutionary dynamics, like the Price equation or Fisher's fundamental theorem of natural selection and so on. And these equations are sometimes called a theorem. And the meaning is that theorem is something that can be derived from mathematics without empirical assumptions. So this is a priori. And then the question arises why these a priori theorems can describe evolutionary dynamics, which is an empirical phenomenon. So that is a question uh, that haunted philosophers of biology since maybe the beginning of the field itself. So that is a, a, the, the topic of my book. So why mathematics can explain, can, can be useful ever in evolutionary biology. So that was a problem. And my answer in the, in the book is that, okay, so many people call that uh, mathematical equations a, a priori, but let's forget it for now and uh, think what you need in order to predict evolutionary phenomena and so on. And then, uh, well, evolutionary phenomena, uh, evolutionary the evolutionary theory is using inductive inferences. That is, you predict or explain the future evolutionary response based on past record. This is called induction. But in the characteristic of induction is it is never 100% uh, certain. So this is pointed out, uh, pointed, pointed out by uh, philosopher David Hume in the 18th century, that is, the inductive infer inference is always fallible. And uh, 
nothing in your data guarantees that future behave in the same way. So you have to make some assumption, and that assumption Hume called the uniformity of nature. So that is, you have to assume that the nature uh, behave in the same way in the present, in the past, and in the future, so that you can use the present data to explain or predict the future response or extrapolate the present data to future. So, if evolutionary theory consists of inductive inference, you need a uniformity of nature. And what is that uniformity? And how do you describe it? That uniformity in population genetics and evolution genetics is represented by a model, evolutionary model. And that model is described in turn by mathematics. So the mathematics in evolutionary biology or evolutionary genetics serves as a uniformity of nature. Okay, then how it can serve as a uniformity of nature? So where does this mathematics come from? Uh, what I discussed in, in, in the book is that uh, there is a specific, uh, there is a branch of mathematics or applied mathematics that is called causal graph theory. And the causal graph theory uses a mathematical, mathematical apparatus like a probability distribu distribution and a graph that describe the causal relationship to study the causal structure of a system. And if you use this theory, you can derive various evolutionary models that you use in inductive inference in evolution, that is, you use to predict evolutionary response. So if you use that particular field of mass or mathematical theory, well, you can describe uh, some kind of uniformity of nature in evolutionary biology, and that gives you a certain model that allows a prediction of evolutionary dynamics. So that is the role of uh, mathematics in evolutionary biology. So the, the answer is, so what is a mathematics to, to begin with? Well, that mathematics is a specific field of a specific part of mathematics called the causal graph theory, which is specifically designed to represent the causal structure of the world. So in a sense, it is not purely a priori because this is a representation of a causal structure. And as a representation of a causal structure, it serves as a uniformity of nature that allows prediction of evolutionary response. That's what I have in, in my book. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, sure, yeah. I, <laughs> it's, it's difficult to explain a book in, a, in, a, in, a, in the short yeah, sentences. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but it's very interesting. Oh, yeah. The, your question was, why, so, so why, why, you need a, why you use mathematics? Yeah, and then you said there was a poses a philosophical problem using mathematics and evolution but i think this is i think you perhaps explained that already mm -hmm. you you mean the point of mathematics being a priori mm -hmm. knowledge but then yeah what's interesting to me is that as you said causal graph theory it's almost like a bridge between the a priori description of mathematics and then actual causal structure yeah yeah i think i think it's a good way to put it yeah mm. Yeah, that's very interesting to think about. I think we're getting towards the end. So one, okay, I have two more questions that are unrelated to each other and also unrelated a little bit to what we've spoken of before. So first one is if we take evolution 
has a structure happening over time again and again and again. A repeating of this pattern that makes very unlikely situations likely. Out of a million possible selections, one gets made. It, it's a very unlikely yet productive force. If we take it, this, this unlikeliness seems to me quite incredible. If we think about entropy in the world, how is it possible that, I don't know what if it's just evolution or what exactly is the role it plays, but that the fact that we have anything here, you and I can be speaking to each other right now, seems incredibly unlikely. How is evolution kind of against the odds? Why do we have something instead of nothing? Yeah, well, I, I understand this is a very yeah, interesting question, important question. I, I'm afraid if I have anything, I can say anything interesting about it. So, yeah, I, 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 I agree. I agree with, uh, I, 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 see, I see the question here. Or perhaps another way I can put it, if, if evolution is this kind of survival of the fittest, by far the majority of organisms or species do not survive. Uh, as I said, for every selection that gets made, an infinite amount are not made. So it's, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that evolution is working almost counterfactually or almost against the odds. So what do you mean by counterfactually? Okay, perhaps not counterfactually, but so unlikely. The nearly impossible is actually reality. Yeah, I kind of understand the question, but at the same time, I'm still not so much clear about what the question really means. So what yeah, the problem I'm having is what is meant by unlikely. So... Unlikely is used in many cases in different ways. One is that we just don't know, we just don't understand, we can just we just can't believe. And that is yeah, I think this is an appropriate response that well, well this is very unlikely, this is very surprising. The life on earth is very surprising. How can it uh, happen? But I think this is a very natural way and this is a, 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 of course this is a wonder but that wonder uh, leads us to a scientific and maybe non-scientific investigations and uh, I don't think that existence of that wonder itself is problematic or a puzzle of course there is a wonder uh, because we are limited beings uh, we don't know many things. Or almost, we know almost nothing, like Socrates. Uh, so we are always have wonders, uh, and uh, that wonder uh, prompts us to, uh, to to investigation. So I think that is a healthy wonder, and there is no no wonder that we have that kind of wonder. So we don't know anything about evolution and so on. Right? Uh, we have just a hypothesis. And uh, some that hypothesis is 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 plausible at some point, and compared to other hypotheses, it has a certain advantage. Uh, I think I would say that it has a lot of advantage. So uh, we are betting our time and money on that hypothesis, and that's just it. I think 
because that that one that kind of wonder exists everywhere, right? So, for example, why? So you say that why there's something instead of nothing? That is a wonder. I mean, why there is anything? <laughs> I mean, uh, for example, well, I don't know anything about uh, cosmology, but it is say that our our universe is so well fine tuned if tuned in terms of parameters. So if some con fundamental parameters, constants of uh, physical, I don't know, constants are different, the universe did not. Uh, was not possible. Mm -hmm. the, the universe as it is, it's impossible. And uh, also uh, the the formation of uh, solar system and us is also very unlikely if you think about it. So we don't know uh, why they happened, but that's why I think the physicists and the astronomers uh, keep uh, trying to understand uh, that. that why and we can never ever get rid of all whys because we can always ask why after question after answer so we are we have always a puzzle and wonder but the the existence of such wonder is not uh, itself a puzzling because that's there's always a puzzle and I think this is a very nice thing with this very, I think it's, it's, a, it's fantastic that we have always a puzzle. If we figure out everything, and if, for example, our existence, our life, or the, the existence of the universe itself is not a wonder, I think it's a really boring. <laughs> so for my last question, I saw on your shelf, shelf you have a book on the environment so this is also something that's part of my interest and in, in international law of course we have environmental law and this is if not the number one at least one of the most pressing questions today is of course our climate situation the climate crisis what implications does that have for uh, evolutionary theory specifically is it something that's talked about because I, I can imagine that there must be some right. connection, but I cannot imagine exactly what. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think there are two, uh, in, in many ways, they are, they are related. The one is uh, empirical, on the empirical ground, uh, changing the climate means the changing environment. And so it impacts uh, biological uh, well, life on the earth. And so uh, I'm not so so much familiar with empirical studies on that change in the environment, but uh, uh, they hear a lot of studies working on the evolutionary response induced by or uh, are likely to be induced by uh, by climate change. Yeah, so that's of course has a, a biological impact. Climate change has uh, the Earth has had a several climate change, of course, from the beginning. And uh, it, at that time, uh, in each time, uh, the life on the Earth had to respond to the change in the climate. And that uh, shaped the current tree of life. So uh, it is, uh, of course, that uh, the current change in climate affect evolutionary response. And well, of course, we don't know much about that, but uh, we, we can certainly think that it is uh, changing uh, biological environment. So that's one thing uh, on the empirical ground. And a, a more philosophical ground is that, so climate science 
itself is a very uh, interesting topic, philosophical, pose um, a philosophical question, because uh, I said in uh, earlier that uh, evolutionary biology is so complex, so it is very much difficult to make a certain, uh, pr a certain prediction. And climate is also a very complex uh, phenomenon. So it is very difficult to make a prediction. But you have to make prediction to say something about climate change. So there is a huge epistemological problem about uh, climate studies. So some philosophers, actually including my supervisor, Elizabeth Lloyd as well, so she is now working on the philosophy of climate science. So philosophers of science recently, more and more philosophers turned on this problem of climate science and try to understand what is the empirical or epistemological, what kind of epistemological justification is available in climate science, and what makes its conclusion secure or vulnerable, vulnerable, and what is its characteristic? How is it different from other scientific fields or not? So, uh, how the model is used in climate science, and these these are all interesting topics actually. So you're in a problem if you move to America because neither evolution nor climate crisis exists there. So <laughs> <laughs> that would be one solution for us, for all of us to move to America. <laughs> but well, I, I don't know whether it exists. Uh, it 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 might not exist subjectively, but it might it might object exist objectively. <laughs> but yeah, f thank you very much. I think that's. Yeah, thank you very much. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah, my pleasure.